0: Hey everyone, my name's Sebastian Major. And Sebastian Major is great. I love our uh, fake history. I'm Rebecca Larson with the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. It's a continent podcast. The history of American food. Partial historians. Czar power. The history of Persia. Wittenberg to Westphalia. QST of a child podcast. The Siakla. Pontifax.
1: The, the history of Sagardvelo, Georgia. To
0: Frankium. Apparently... Everyone. We're thrilled to be presenting at the 2023 Intelligent Speech Conference. We will be speaking at Intelligent Speech. My favorite podcasters at Intelligent Speech. And I will be speaking at Intelligent Speech Online this year. Mark your calendars for this November 4th. Intelligent Speech, the online conference for history fans by history podcasters. It's a three-ring circus of fascinating content with around 24 hours of live presentations and roundtables happening in four digital rooms. This year is all about contingencies. Times when history meets the unexpected. The topic of my keynote address is no contingencies, stories of historical figures who did not have a backup plan. All about the tutors and their contingency plans communes, cults, and caliphs. What happens when you're starving in a city under siege for months, surrounded by food? Food Foods that you can't eat as it's your life's work. Food that's more important than you are. So go to intelligencespeechonline.com to get your tickets. And check with your favorite podcast host, because they probably have a discount code you can use for 10% off. And we'll see you at the Intelligent Speech Conference. November 4th. It'll be a doozy. Hello and welcome to Pond I'm Fry. And I'm Bree. ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. But today we are not ranking a pope. We have a very special bonus episode with a very special guest. So I would like to introduce to all of you, Eric from Saint Podcast.
1: Hello. Hi, hi, hi.
0: Eric, can you tell us a little bit about your podcast?
1: Sure. So my podcast is, uh, it's, it's all about saints, as the, as the title suggests, but it's a, it's a historic and cultural exploration of saints' legends. And um, I guess, you know, I, I only started listening to podcasts sort of relatively recently during the pandemic. And I naturally gravitated towards the history podcasts, and I was looking for a podcast specifically about Saints' legends. And there are loads that are devotional, loads that are little prayers, but I wanted something that was more historic. So I was sort of I was complaining to my boyfriend about it, and he just sort of casually said, Just make one. <laughs> I was like, All right. And so I started it, and and here we are in the same podcast. Um, yeah, so exploring the legends, but pulling out a lot of the the, the the cognates between various medieval legends, pagan legends, sort of ancient Indian, Roman, Phoenician, Egyptian archetypes, um and just the weird and wonderful parts of the stories that make up saints legends.
0: I think you had a very similar vibe to us when we started doing Pontifex because we were looking at the popes as a historical force rather than a religious phenomenon. And so it's very much in the same vein. And I love that you, do that. And you also bring this how the stories of the saints are very applicable to modern life, not just as a religious person, but in terms of pop culture, and our zeitgeist and how we view identity, which is really, really great. So well,
1: thanks. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's, that's what, <laughs> that's what I find interesting about the saints. You know, when I was little, I loved X-Men. And I, was, <laughs> I was raised Catholic. And so for me, saints were like, you know, quote, unquote, real X-Men. You know, this is this is the one you do when you need to, like, find something that's lost. This is the one who's fire. And this is the thunder one. Um, (laughs) My, you know, my love for Saints went hand in hand with my love for comic books and Dungeons and Dragons and stuff.
0: I love that because right now I'm writing a bonus episode about dragon-slaying saints. So that's ah, very amazing.
1: on yes, brand. So awesome.
0: <laughs> there are, there are a surprising amount of saints that have slain dragons. So. Yeah,
1: yes, absolutely, absolutely.
0: But we're not here to talk about dragon-slaying saints today. Well, that in a literal, but perhaps a metaphorical perspective. If you want to sort of get really double a in there. Because we are going to talk about some pervy aspects of saint art today. So do you want to give us just a brief summary of where we're going on this journey before we take off? Sure,
1: sure. So the first time I was really interested in saints was my mom bought me these four little books, like kind of tiny squares, each, you know, with stories of saints. And, you know, there was one saint in particular that drew my attention. It was Saint Sebastian, and Mm. this was like a shirtless young person, you know, not like an old pope or a monk wearing a hood, someone that I could I could relate to. But also, you know, the young Eric who didn't know he was gay yet was attracted to this saint for reasons that weren't apparent then, but Mm. came to the fore later when he became a teen and older. And I just just started researching and looking into the saints' iconographies and realizing that a lot of saints, whether male or female, especially you know after a certain time period, were painted in very, very erotic and sensual ways. And of course, as a good Catholic boy back then, it was just, no, this is just really to celebrate the beauty that is faith.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> but in researching it deeper and looking into the artists and looking into the people who posed to be these saints, you realize that the story is quite different, and you know what you're looking at now. And I'm not saying they're not devotional artworks because you know they are for some people, but really a lot of the most famous paintings of saints and other religious figures are sort of like the equivalent of like you know um, x rated photos that you and like your partner will exchange for each other because the people who commissioned them were commissioning the bodies and faces of their lovers, male or female.
0: Absolutely. So we know that when they were being created, eroticism was absolutely part of the process. Sure. This isn't just a renaissance phenomenon, although it will absolutely take off there. So where does this all start in art? Let's talk about the beginnings of saint depictions and where we go from there to something that is incredibly erotic.
1: Sure, sure. So the first saint depictions, and you know, the most popular saints, you know, in the early Middle Ages, medieval period, whatever you want to call it, were the virgin martyrs and mm-hmm. the martyrs were, you know, from the Roman era martyrs who, you know, were they died for God. And that was sort of something that was really revered, that they gave themselves, they gave their lives up. And the original hagiographies, before they were, you know, depictions, the hagiographies always went into really gory detail on how they were tortured, the way they were <laughs> tortured before they were killed the outrageous ways they were killed, although some of those outrageous ways were added later or changed or were um, typos that just kind of kept being carried on. And so the original paintings of saints were super, super gory. They were really stylized, almost kind of cartoony. And in the Middle Ages, you get a lot of altarpieces, triptychs, and other depictions where you have these figures that aren't really naturalistic. You could t- It's a human, but you know, there's like blood all over them, but it looks like almost like red hair because it's like, you know, red all over them. But pictures, uh, paintings of, particularly of women, of virginal women, nude, topless, being tortured horrifically, sexual tortures. And they were not erotic at all, unless, you know, you're someone who really gets off on that kind of violence. (laughs) But but I, I think back then in the medieval times, It wasn't about eroticism. It was you wanted to get across that these people suffered, that they were in pain just like Christ. So, you know, their pain was like Christ's pain. So, wow, look at this person. She's a superhero or he's a superhero because look at all the pain they endured for their religion and for their belief. And I feel like that was the main Thrust of medieval art. So it's all gory and it's not erotic at all. Again, mm-hmm. unless you're into that, I don't think that was the point back then.
0: It comes to mind some of the Patreon episodes we've done about saints where we covered like Saint Lucy or Saint Agatha, where we discussed their torture, the breasts being ripped off, the eyeballs being ripped off. This was not in any way something that is to endear you into that sort of sense of intimacy. This is somebody who is with you with your suffering, which of course is reflective of those time periods because we are still seeing the generational horrors that would have come out of mass persecutions. It's only in the third century that we legalize Christianity, so it's this long legacy of that. And what you were saying about the depiction, of course, always makes me think of Fra Angelico, which is a little later on, but still very much in that style period where mm. you get these crucifixions with just spurting blood fountains. Yes. I know. Fry has done enjoyed- yet. Yeah. <laughs>
1: little, little angels catching the blood with the cup and these like distorted figures that look like there are limbs and everything's been broken. And it's just, it's, it's gruesome stuff. It's gothy and gruesome.
0: Very human blood sprinklers.
1: Mm, it's yeah. <laughs> totally. And then, while this was going on in Western Europe and sort of the Eastern Christianity, you had the Byzantine style of art, which was more stylized, and it wasn't gruesome. Mm-hmm. But it was the Byzantine art always would have a big saint in the middle, so a big figure that was sort of the height of the canvas, and on either sides would be these panels, almost like a comic book. <laughs> where you'd see scenes from the life, and they would always be the scenes that, of the miracles—the cool and wonderful and strange things that happened. Like they flew, they rose the dead, they um, exercised demons, or you know, uh, parted the Red Sea. Whatever it was, you would have these scenes on the side, and it was very stylized. The saints were always clothed. The Byzantine art didn't have all the nudity that the Western mm-hmm. art had. It also wasn't as gory. And it was just more stylized.
0: It's lost the, uh, the Roman persuasion.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I think there, these comic book storyboards, basically, on either side of the big figure on the canvas, that I feel like was sort of the next step where there were scenes of what was happening. And if you fast forward to, say, the late 1200s, early 1300s, then you into Giotto who a lot of people say, you know, sort of founded the Renaissance. It was proto-Renaissance. Yeah. 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 And he, I mean, I I love his stuff because it's, Mm -hmm. when it started looking, there was a naturalism, the colors were different and everything started looking more like real life, although still stylized. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the paintings he did of St. Francis and everything just started looking more like the art that we know today.
0: I'm pulling some images up so I can see what we're talking about oh, right. here. Yes, yes. Oh, I I knew <laughs> at least at least here. Yes, <laughs> Giotto.
1: Yeah, yeah. and um, and Giotto's stuff isn't erotic either. It's quite straightforward. Mm-hmm. It's very reverential. I mean, one of his paintings of the frescoes of Saint Francis is nude, but it's part of the story where he takes off his clothes and renounces his earthly life and father and parents to eventually found the Franciscans. But there's nothing really erotic about it. They're quite reverential, straightforward paintings. Yeah. And I don't think it gets, it doesn't get pervy, really pervy until the Renaissance as you had mentioned as well.
0: (laughs) Well, that's a direct correlation to humanism too, because we start to look at the saints as, celebrations in the same way that they were earlier in the celebrations of suffering. This is now an era where we celebrate the beauty of humanity. And they wanted to celebrate every aspect of that up into including the physical.
1: Absolutely. You're absolutely right. The the humanity of it, the humanism of it. And since the artists and everyone, the sort of thought, philosophy, art, architecture was hearkening back to Greece, ancient Greece and ancient Rome, and we looked at their art it was very natural, very erotic, all these beautiful bodies. It was this, you know, this standard of beauty, which we still have today, rightly or wrongly, right? Probably mm-hmm. unfortunately, of these, you know, if you're a woman, you were slim, big-breasted, curvy. If you're a man, you were again muscular. And the ideal beauty was someone who was young and fit and therefore mm-hmm. also melt as well. And artists in the Renaissance took this on. And all of the saints started looking a lot like some of the Greek and Roman figures as well. And some of them have direct cognates. And Mm. for me, the one, so, you know, I mentioned St. Sebastian earlier when sort of the first saint that grabbed my attention. And when you look at the first depictions of St. Sebastian that exist, they're these um, mosaics from Ravenna around, I think, the sixth century, fifth century, sixth century. And they depict a gray haired warrior. So a grey-haired soldier wearing like a soldier's outfit or a toga, which is befitting someone of an equestrian class, but grey hair, grey beard, because St. Sebastian was probably in his mid-40s, maybe 50 when he died, because he was the captain of the Praetorian Guard. And Mm -hmm. to become captain, you'd have to have done that for a while. So late 30s, early 40s at the earliest. So those depictions are probably most what he looked like actually in life. If he was a real person, and even the Catholic Church doesn't think he was actually a real person, but <laughs> he would have been a middle-aged man when he died. And then the Middle Ages—they took off his shirt and stuck loads of arrows in him, just mm-hmm. and made it very gruesome. So he always—he looks like a twisted, almost looks like Gollum, like tied to a tree with arrows at him. So it's not erotic; it's gruesome, and you're like, "Wow, this saint—he really suffered just like Christ." So he's he no longer. And he was still bearded, sometimes white haired, but usually now he would have dark hair or brown hair. So he was a little younger and the shirt came off, but not for any erotic reason, I think, but more so you could see this guy is bloodied and full of arrows. And I think the original hagiography in English was he was as full of pricks as an urchin, an urchin being a hedgehog. And that word prick is important because it'll actually it started at that time in the renaissance era to have the same connotation as it does now yeah so so yeah so full of pricks and the medieval saint sebastian is gruesome it's gross it's not erotic in the medieval era too saint sebastian was a plague saint you prayed to him for deliverance from the black plague from the bubonic plague Mm -hmm. and a big reason for this is that the arrow has always been since antiquity and even um, almost all around the world uh, a symbol of disease and so you know you had like eros or cupid right the greek or roman god of love and he shot arrows because in classical times love was thought of as a disease and we've all been lovesick where you just do crazy things you would never do when you're not feeling that way so they saw it as a disease and eros and cupid used his arrows to give people stds if you displeased him But there was another god of disease who was even more powerful, and that was Apollo. So Apollo was a buff, young god, really strong, one of the most powerful gods in the Roman pantheon and the Greek pantheon. And he also shot arrows, but his arrows delivered more terrible diseases like plague. Mm -hmm. Because St. Sebastian survived being shot with arrows, a lot of people think he died being shot with arrows, but he actually survived. Christians prayed to him for deliverance from and protection against disease because he survived it and then it was a natural thing in the renaissance for artists and artists who today would probably identify as some sort of queer like michelangelo and others latched onto saint sebastian as this deliverer from disease because i think it was just it was a way to paint a hot nude male body without any problems so Absolutely. from the medieval, gruesome Sebastian, the Renaissance Sebastian was even younger. So now Sebastian's like a 20-year-old, a really fit, athletic 20-year-old with one or two arrows in his body, sometimes mm-hmm. not at all, he was holding them. And the models that sat for St. Sebastian were always the most sought-after sex workers of whatever city it was. And lots of you know wealthy men commissioned paintings of these beautiful men as Saint Sebastian to basically disguise naughty pictures as a devotional image. Mm
0: -hmm. And there was so much justification there as well, because this is again, a saint of a deliverance of disease. This is somebody who is vital. This is somebody who is representing not only in his spiritual strength, but his physical strength what it is to live up to that image of health, of spiritual purity, of physical purity. There's plenty to celebrate there that isn't just about painting <laughs> a nice hot man.
1: Totally. And, and I think it's important that you talk about, the, you know, vitality too. I think that for a plague saint, I think it probably a younger one is more believable than a mm-hmm. middle-aged mm-hmm. one, someone who's in the full flower of youth. So I think, you know, there were lots of reasons why it made sense to do that. And Saint Sebastian, so in the Renaissance, there, you know, there's this flourishing of paintings of him where all of a sudden there's a, a period like right before you get to kind of the Baroque era or the Reformation, Counter-Reformation, where most Saint Sebastian paintings after that, there is not no era at all. And it's mm-hmm. basically just a painting of a topless young twenty-something like stud sitting there. And you only know in St. Sebastian because the artist said that St. Sebastian. There's no halo, no angels, nothing. No, Sometimes arrows. there's a little bit of blood, but...
0: They don't want to mar the beautiful frame that they're painting. <laughs> exactly.
1: exactly. And my, my favorite St. Sebastian painting is one by Bronzino. So this is later after the Renaissance. And in this painting, again, this young man, redheaded, who...
0: Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> has, he, there's one arrow stuck in the side, like in his rib. But he's not in any pain but he holds the other arrow another arrow in his hand and the way he holds it is that he grasps the shaft of the arrow with one one hand and with the other hand he's playing with the tip of the arrow with his thumb Mm -hmm. and that becomes quite a common way to depict saint sebastian holding an arrow as if it were the size of let's say a banana and shape of a banana and holding it that way and what was so scandalous about this painting too was that there were no angels no halos he's not looking up into heaven but he's kind of looking off to the side as if to someone else and kind of this flirtatious look and he's it's naked super flirtatious
0: yeah. yeah oh yeah <laughs> he's cheeky i'm upset that he looks like the guy from ratatouille <laughs> <laughs> he does
1: he totally does i had never thought about that before but i can't see that now
0: oh right you've just ruined this painting for so many people
1: (laughs) my question is where is ratatouille in this painting
0: yeah yeah (laughs) hiding behind that uh, that cloak you know Mm. yes
1: (laughs) and um i i read this one theory but i love the theory i don't believe it's real but i want it to be because when i started researching more it just didn't seem right but that's so bronzino probably gay or i should say he was a man who loved the male form and Mm -hmm. The theory is that this this young man who posed for Sebastian was um, a sex worker who was very popular in Florence, but that Bronzino and a lot of other artists and also, um, I guess, high-ranking people of Florence were part of the St. Sebastian Society and that it was part of this and that they met in the crypt of a St. Sebastian church in Florence and they basically commissioned Bronzino to paint him because he was the young man that always entertained them. And he became (laughs) their Saint Sebastian, which I I love. I feel like this should be like a Netflix, like series (laughs) or something, or or like a Gothic novel. But I don't think it's true, but it's very likely that the person who posed for this was a sex worker. No one of status would dream of posing topless like that. Um, Mm -hmm. I think if you you were like a Medici or someone really powerful, sure, but you'd be painted as Poseidon, Zeus, you Aries, painted-
0: yep, yeah, <laughs> Mars,
1: Mars, absolutely. You wouldn't be painted as a sacred figure because that's kind of like mm, you can't do that, but you'd be painted as a classical like god and not a boy saint like this, yeah. So, you know, th- there were other theories that oh, this was a wedding portrait, but that's not a wedding portrait. No one did wedding portraits like that, they were all very stylized, <laughs> you were dressed, no one had a topless wedding portrait, you know, we no. do now, like but not back then. a
0: courting gift.
1: Yeah, it's a courting gift. Um, Flirtatious enough. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. I have
0: to say, too, he very much has that look that would be very popular in Florence. If you look at the Florentine art of that era and you look at the models they were using, oh yeah, he would have fit right in.
1: Definitely, definitely.
0: (laughs) So they all look like the guy from Ratatouille? (laughs) Is that what they were into? (laughs) They love the the cheruby curls and that sort of... Red or a golden red or strawberry blonde, like very into that whole vibe, not the Ratatouille vibe.
1: <laughs> the Ratatouille is the Florentine ideal. Who knew? <laughs>
0: <laughs> How dare?
1: There, there's another story about um, a St. Sebastian painting that was commissioned for a church, um, what was it the Church of San Marco in Florence?
0: And it was mm-hmm. by
1: uh, Friar Bartolomeo. And... The story is, and I don't think it's actually true because I want to say that it was a story about Vasari, who a lot of his stuff, he just, he kind of made up stuff.
0: <laughs> Vasari was a salty man. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. He was fake news Vasari. The story that he tells is that the painting was, was put up in the church, but the priests at the church soon found out from the confessional that the parishioners were having impure thoughts during mass, male and female. And so the friars quickly took it down and the painting has since been lost. So no one knows what happened to it. But whether it's true or not, it just goes to show that this happened. This was a worry that people were like, what is this? So whilst these were being made, it's not that everyone just accepted. Yes, this is a great sacred devotional painting. A lot of people are like, what is that? You know, uh, mm, what is this for? What are you you worshipping? You're on your knees for what? Um, and it was a, it was a problem.
0: Yeah. And that, that has a longstanding tradition too. I'm sure you've heard of, of Gien du Mal, the, um, sexy Satan that went up in the church in the 1800s that completely distracted all of the parishioners. And so they, they took it down and commissioned a new one, which turned out to be even hotter. Hotter. Yeah, That's great.
1: It was the devil's will.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Eroticism in church does not go away.
1: (laughs) No, no, no. And even with the Sistine Chapel, right? The Last Judgment fresco.
0: Yes. How it had
1: to be covered up after Michelangelo passed away. They had his, um, I think his assistant, like, you Mm -hmm. know, put underwear on. And there's even that, there's that little bit where St. Catherine of Siena is sort of bending over and St. Blaise is behind her. And he was martyred by having these like iron combs raked over his body. So he's standing behind her with his hands raised, holding the combs, she's bent over picking up her wheel. So it mm-hmm. looks like before this painter changed it, St. Blaise was taking her from behind. And there were all of these different yeah. sort of little bits of the Last Judgment fresco. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if you imagine like St. Blaise, before he was corrected, he was looking down at St. Catherine, she was naked, he was naked. It was just like, what, what's happening there? And loads of private parts were covered up mm-hmm. um, because- I have
0: seen this painting before, but I definitely did not know that. I just commented on, on how buff the ladies were. Right. see, <laughs> Catherine is buff. So yeah. buff.
1: <laughs> I mean, Michelangelo didn't really paint women well because I think no. he was not interested. And, <laughs> you know, a lot of academics talk about how he, he frequented the baths, the stufi, which the all-male baths. And he would go to the men's baths to, let's say, study uh, male anatomy. And that's where he gets all, all of these forms and things from. And I guess, mm-hmm. you know, there were no women in there. So he never, he didn't study women from life.
0: No. <laughs> that's fair. Not interested. <laughs> that's, a, that's a gentle way of putting yes. it.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, so I think, you know, the Renaissance happened. And as we said, it wasn't that everyone thought this was okay. Um. There were loads of church officials and just, you know, everyday people too, who saw that this was erotic. They didn't like it. They they were anti and this. And when the Counter-Reformation happened and the Reformation happened, I think a lot of the Protestant, their problems with Catholicism, some of it was about the artwork. It was overtly mm-hmm. erotic. And I think, you know, by the time the Reformation happened, a lot of it was just overt. There was people weren't trying yes. to pretend either. It was just. You know, loads of mistresses and lovers were being painted as the Madonna or as Mary Magdalene. And it was scandalous stuff. They were desired by everyone, cardinals, bishops, popes, bankers. They all commissioned these paintings so they could hang them in their private devotional chamber for, you know, private devotions.
0: (laughs) Absolutely.
1: (laughs) One of my favorite one of these is um, the Maloon Diptych by Jean Fouquet.
0: Oh yes, Agnes Sorel.
1: Yes, and it's so bizarre. The painting is gorgeous, it's so bizarre. It looks so modern as well, like almost like a postmodern yes. sort of painting. But um, the model, the the breast and the face were of Agnes Sorel, as, as you just mentioned, who was one of the, the beauties of her time. And um, she was the mistress of the king, King Charles the fifth, sixth? One of the King Charles's who commissioned the painting from Fouquet because he wanted to honor his mistress and, Mm -hmm. you know, hung in the private chapel at the castle. And, you know, I think loads of rich people had their mistresses painted and honored in this way, whereas their wives, you know, had standard formal portraits um, as themselves, whereas their mistresses got to be gods and goddesses.
0: Well, and the the interesting thing about this one in particular is there's no plausible deniability here. Agnes Sorel famously tailored her clothes to specifically display her favorite breast. And here we are with a very, this is not a breastfeeding Jesus. No. (laughs) Jesus. Jesus is nowhere near. (laughs) Jesus doesn't look interested.
1: (laughs) No, he's not. He's not looking at her. He's looking off to the side somewhere. And they're not connecting at all. None. And it really is, you know, she's looking down at whoever is looking up at the painting, which is clearly would be the King Charles. Yeah.
0: So there's, there's no way he can pass this off as the Madonna without everybody knowing exactly who it's supposed to be. So this is definitely that idea of being overt and being shameless because nobody's getting away with this and thinking, oh, no, that's Mary.
1: Right, right. <laughs>
0: You and, dirty minded people. Yeah.
1: But I, I think it's an amazing piece because it, the style, it's so bizarre but beautiful. It is and bizarre. Graphic with these shapes and everything. It's yeah, it's it's gorgeous.
0: It actually reminds me very strongly, especially with the very, very red cherubs. Hmm. It reminds me of all of the American horror story iconography it's, that they oh. use. They're, like yeah. the red bloody latex. Like it's yeah going back up. Just in the background, yeah. Yeah, like these are American horror story latex, based. Totally, totally. <laughs> so modern feeling in that mm. way.
1: Totally. So I think, you know, the Protestants weren't wrong that there was a lot of corruption in the church in Rome and a lot of this was not devotional. Mm-hmm. So the I guess when the Reformation happened, obviously the church responded with the Counter-Reformation and part of the Counter-Reformation was a bunch of rules on... What you could and couldn't do in paintings. So having the Madonna naked was now forbidden. You weren't supposed to have Mary Magdalene naked either, although people still did. Saint Sebastian was no longer supposed to be depicted wearing nothing. And so whilst I think a lot of the Catholic artists did sort of change tact, they, they did a bit in the North, they certainly didn't. So the breastfeeding Madonna, the Madonna Lactins we just saw by Jean Fouquet, in the north they continue to have this and you have all these really pervy breastfeeding
0: paintings yes. where
1: baby Jesus looks like a naughty schoolboy and he's like grabbing the breast looking at the viewer like ha ha um, oh and- yeah
0: the ones where he's like gnawing yeah like
1: yeah yeah doing a
0: grab <laughs> doing a
1: grab or or reaching down into his mother's blouse but with this like face, this kind of grin on his face that
0: mm-hmm. is clearly not a mild. baby face. <laughs> no,
1: not a baby face. And then you also get a lot of these madonna Lactans paintings where the baby Jesus is like, is he 13? How old is this yes. Jesus? And, you know, it was definitely a choice by the artists. And I don't think, especially in the Protestant North, where they didn't revere Mary, this was not devotional. There was something, mm-hmm. something else go- going on there. But I think back in the Catholic countries, you still had people like Caravaggio who he was definitely part of the, you know, painting during the Counter-Reformation. And he didn't have nudity per se in his paintings, but they were still really, really scandalous because his lovers, again, were painted as these sacred figures. One of his favorites was another painter named Francesco Boneri, nicknamed Checo. And Caravaggio painted Checo as John the Baptist several times. And you can see Checo grow up. Yeah. When you look at the various paintings where he's quite young to begin with very
0: young yeah very young. in the one with the ram
1: yes alarmingly and the one with the ram too he doesn't even look like john the baptist he looks like pan or bacchus or something it's yes. so pagan but it's called john the baptist so i guess it is and then later on he's clearly a teenager yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this is so 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 pagan and i think Again, there are no religious symbols in this to anchor this as a sacred painting.
0: Right. Yeah. What's John the Baptist doing? (laughs) (laughs) And this is the thing about Caravaggio being so deliberately provocative, because Mm. the symbol that we'd be looking for with John the Baptist is a small lamb. Yes. And what do we have here instead? We have a ram specifically to circumvent.
1: Yeah, just turn it upside down.
0: Yeah, invert this idea that we should be seeing for John the Baptist to make a very provocative statement.
1: Absolutely, it it makes it so pagan, totally. Yeah. It's so (laughs) pagan, so provocative, and there's nothing to anchor it as a sacred image. And Mm -hmm. it's interesting, like for, for the male gaze, It was really the men were St. Sebastian and John the Baptist were the most popular. The women, it was Mary Magdalene and also um, Catherine of Alexandria. And also Judith, the Old Testament heroine. Mm -hmm. And I think the interesting thing about Judith and Catherine of Alexandria, even in the Renaissance, they were never painted in an erotic way because I think their stories were all about how badass they were. Yes. And so a lot of the mistresses that were painted were were women who were known to be super fiery and super Mm -hmm. like. So Caravaggio painted um, his friend and possibly lover Felida as Judith. And, you know, Felida was one of the most popular courtesans in Rome. Mm -hmm. And she was also known as someone's like, you know, don't mess with her. She knows her stuff. She you know, she can take care of herself. So she was painted as Judith because Judith kills the enemy general Holofernes. And so she was thought of as a badass. So a lot of strong women were painted as Judith. Mm-hmm. But even these paintings would have been used as, I think, um, private devotional aids.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> I love this one, too, because there's so much violence in this Caravaggio totally. painting, which I think is only really topped by Artemisia, who we could have a whole other conversation about because yes. she's portrayed herself in that, which is yes. wonderful. Yes, and but... I
1: wonder what story she's telling from her life or stories oh. probably like every man who told her no.
0: There is so much rage in the Artemisia version of this. But what I love about the Caravaggio here is that she's committing an act of intense violence. There's blood spurting out everywhere. And she just looks like she's telling him to quit being a little bitch. She is not phased <laughs> at all about what she's doing. She's just like, oh, shut up already. Like I'm doing- She's
1: calm. She's, she's serene. Yeah. just like It'll Be over
0: in a like, minute.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> exactly. I love that, (laughs) exactly. It makes sense that they would portray their feistiest of courtesans in that way because that's the inversion again of this idea of like male power. It's like, ooh, she top you.
1: Right, exactly. And the
0: excitement of that moment is being represented in this very powerful female story from the Bible.
1: Exactly.
0: Here's the um, St. Catherine of Alexandria one for Fry as well. She's gonna stab you. Yes, she is. I love again the expression uh, she it's just so so powerfully like don't mess with me yeah. and how attractive that is to the right mm-hmm. audience.
1: Exactly. Obviously Catherine of Alexandria she's known for she was the brightest mind of her generation. She was able to outwit the smartest men from the Roman Empire and even the the Roman emperor himself. So I think mm-hmm. you know painting someone as St. Catherine is to say this one's smart. Don't mess with her. She knows more than you do.
0: It's very appealing.
1: Mm. There was also um, Cristofano Allori, who was Mm. a sort of a, I guess, a Baroque era painter. Who also his lover was this woman who was affectionately called La Matafida, who had a fiery, fiery temper, and so she was also painted as these similar figures. It's always been interesting to me to link these popular saints and their Greek and Roman counterparts. So Mary Magdalene who was you know painted very erotically by lots of artists her legend lends itself to it because mm-hmm. it's not true but you know she's been cast as this prostitute who begs forgiveness and redeems herself so a lot of paintings show her as a fallen prostitute about to repent which means that she's naked so of course so she's totally nude and perhaps in tears Um, you know, praying on her knees. And so loads of mistresses were painted that way. Lovers were painted that way. But also in the Renaissance, she started being painted. um, She was painted often as a Venus-like character, Mm -hmm. you know, lying down on a couch with an attendant angel, the way Venus would have been with with Cupid. And whoever was, you know, there might be another, a male figure in it, which often would be the lover, um, almost, you know, so mirroring the, the Roman and Greek iconographies as well. In the same way that St. Sebastian very much mirrors the Apollo iconography. So Apollo basically made St. Sebastian much younger than his medieval self and gave him muscles and made him attractive and John the Baptist is this shepherd um, trope, this sort of ancient shepherd boy when from Greek mythology, we have people like Endymion, I think it was the goddess of the moon saw him sleeping. He was so beautiful that she made him sleep forever. So every time she raced her chariot across the sky, she could gaze upon his body. Or Ganymede, who was a beautiful shepherd boy that Zeus fell in love with and kidnapped and took to Olympus to make his cupbearer. And so John the (laughs) Baptist is just another line of these shepherd boy tropes. And a lot of the paintings mirror the Ganymede paintings or the Endymion paintings as well.
0: Absolutely. It's interesting, too, because he becomes, at least in some part, biblically, almost a spiritual father to Jesus in the one who who baptizes him. And yet the imagery is all very much the younger male to yeah. take in, which is, again, a shift how much they're manipulating and negotiating what they're portraying in order to portray what they actually want, which is... For their own purpose
1: right to portray what the customer is asking for <laughs> and it's interesting you mentioned that because i mean the first surviving paintings of john the baptist are of an older man bearded
0: mm-hmm. a hermit
1: mm-hmm. he's dirty he looks smelly because he's a wandering hermit completely clothed but during the renaissance they've started to become this trend of depicting the holy family so you'd have mary and joseph as sort of young parents Jesus as an infant, and because John the Baptist was his slightly older cousin, he would be a toddler. Mm. But you also had the idea of uh, John the Baptist being in the wilderness. So he was a hermit, and he was a shepherd of souls before Jesus was a shepherd of souls. So he started being depicted as a shepherd. So soon he was half-clothed, so he would have a shepherd's loincloth that sort of exposed one nipple, one side <laughs> of his chest. And then with the Holy Family depictions, he started becoming younger and younger and just started looking like a hot guy. <laughs> a hot guy wearing a loincloth surrounded by sheep.
0: Well, exactly, because these powerful men are not exactly taking lovers that are old, dirty hermit men. <laughs> exactly,
1: exactly. There's a, an example of um, Leonardo da Vinci mm. painted a John the Baptist of his lover, a painter and a young man named Salai. And yes. this painting was commissioned by a wealthy banker. And so when... <laughs> The original painting had Salai in this pose holding a cross so that it was clearly a religious painting. <laughs> but when the banker took it home, he realized he had these impure thoughts. We so came back to da Vinci to say, you have to change this. Can you please make him a secular shepherd boy? So da Vinci repainted it, took out the ba- So the background was no longer like the inside of a hermit's cave, but had a landscape. He took out off the cross and just made him gesturing to the sky. The banker took it home but it was still too much for him to bear, so he threw it into a river. And oh, pan- oh. we have paintings now because there were copies that were made, but the original mm-hmm. paintings were thrown in a river because it caused him too much grief and he was just too, I guess, inspired by them and was a of his soul.
0: So that's very interesting too, that he thought that making it a secular image would make it less attractive <laughs> and less arousing to him <laughs> rather than the other way around, which is generally the way we would think of it. Well- maybe it was he felt bad about it he felt bad that it was a saint Holy. Yeah. yeah
1: i mean i just don't think you could win right he can't win
0: <laughs> look i want to lust over this so please put in a neutral background so i feel less shameful about it but then i'll throw it in the river anyways i guess
1: really he should just say five hail marys and four our fathers <laughs> Flagellation.
0: exactly he's been a bad boy oh wait we're back on the same track now
1: right 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 i love this one i just you know and what, what fascinates me about all of this stuff too is that you know so many people when we go into a museum or go into a church that's full of art it, there's this reverence you're like wow beautiful awesome and it is but what you don't realize is i would say like easily a third of the people you see there are sex workers and illicit lovers nothing wrong with that but just yep. understand that you know, we sort of, you know, think of museums and things almost like the library, it's all good. And it's sort of like, you know, very, you have to be quiet and respectful because it was always that's like, no, no, not really. It's kind of just like Instagram. (laughs) You know, there's some, some stories that aren't so like buttoned up. And I think they're far more interesting than what the museum labels say. And I wish that museums would start talking about the models Mm-hmm. rather than just the painting itself and who commissioned it and why, but the real reason you know why they've commissioned it and they don't.
0: Yeah, it would add to the richness of the understanding of the mm. art because one of my favorite things about what we get to do in our podcast is talk about the humanity in these roles that are relatively unquestioned at certain periods yes. in time. So, so bringing that human element to it makes it so much richer. And that is so true about art as well. There is so much more you can take from a painting, looking at and understanding who that person was to the painter and why they chose to use this particular character, this particular saint. Why they chose the poses that they did. There's so much more than just ah, oh, this is where the light hits that makes it yeah. so much more fascinating.
1: Absolutely, and so much more than just oh, this is the Madonna and Child, and it's the Virgin Mary with the baby Jesus. Like that, that's a real person. Who is that person? Because you know all the painters had models. Most of them didn't paint from memory.
0: And there's a richness there too in the implication that this also sort of suggests the humanity of the saint that we're talking about. Mm. We've lost a lot of that in at least the way the church hardline describes sainthood as these people who are pure and whatnot, but a lot of them were real people who Mm. came to their faith or converted after a life of sin or all of these aspects or struggled with fear and doubt, I
1: Doubt, yeah.
0: humanity, so it would benefit the I the actual so. story and the devotional to do the same thing that we're doing with art.
1: I think so. And I think what's interesting, too, about this sacred art is that it was one of the few places where the abject poor and the really wealthy met. Mm, mm-hmm. All the people painted were the poorest of people. Poor and, people! Yeah, and sex work, you know, the way we think about it now, back then, like, if you wanted to live, if you want to eat, and I don't think it wasn't thought of in the same way as it was today. It was just something that unfortunately, a lot of people just had to do. And, you know, sitting for a painter was one of those things, but a lot of the times they became lovers. And that's also a story that you don't hear about, you know, the relationships between the painters and their muses.
0: Which loses a lot of the intimacy in the work mm. as well.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: And you're right about it being a place where poverty and wealth meet because we're still painting relatively idealized versions of people until like Caravaggio, because Caravaggio is painting his homeless friends as homeless friends. But- Yes, with
1: like dirt on their feet and stuff, yeah.
0: Exactly. So we're seeing this, but this would have been an experience for people who would have never-
1: Yeah, and Had any
0: exposure. Yeah, exactly. In life, it's quite an interesting parallel to like, this is where we have these inception points. It was providing not only a way of life and a way of survival for people, but also like showing them their idealized selves in the same brushstroke, really. Yes,
1: yes, yes. And I think, you know, the, the choices the artists make also tell us about the people of the time. It tells you about the history, the social history of it all. Yeah, it's it's a shame. And I know museum labels, you know, no one wants to read like, you know, paragraphs and paragraphs. But I think, you know, I would love the chance to like go through a museum and just like, let me just add a sentence here. (laughs) Add a detail here.
0: This is why my husband loves to go to a museum with me. I'll give the tour. Yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't have to read all the things.
1: (laughs) So, you know, when I was thinking about coming on to talk to you both, I was trying to find popes that specifically commissioned um, paintings of their lovers, I only found one.
0: Mm. Definitively.
1: <laughs> I found one definitively. And that was uh, Alexander the the sixth.
0: Yes. <laughs> so
1: he, he had um, his Miss Farnese. His, yes, Miss Farnese was his, uh, his lovely lover, painted as the Virgin Mary. So I mean, imagine the Pope painting your, your lover, and they're supposed to be celibate, right?
0: -hmm. As the
1: Madonna, although the fresco has been since destroyed, and the Pope is kneeling before her.
0: That was the I want to make this point too, because he is kneeling in subjugation and adoration of the Mary, who is his mistress. So obviously fantastic.
1: Good for her. But it's shocking, you know. And the fact that Christ is on her lap, you know, giving a symbol of blessing is almost as if he's blessing their relationship.
0: Mm-hmm. God approves. Mm-hmm.
1: Christ approves of what of what you're doing. Um, oh,
0: absolutely! <laughs> he's got his little prayer hand.
1: He does making a symbol, rabbit ears,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you know the two figures are connected through the baby Jesus figure because they're yes. really touching him. So it's almost like you know th- their union <laughs> is literally connected by him, and it's almost like he's just telling the world it's cool. God says it's <laughs> all right, you know. <laughs>
0: I'm in charge and God says it's fine. Exactly. We're touching through spiritual union and that's okay.
1: (laughs) Which is probably one of the least horrible things he did, but you know. Yeah. (laughs) So you'll both get into that later.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that is our most anticipated episode by far.
1: I am. I can't wait.
0: (laughs) And it's so funny because everybody knows him, but that whole era is going to be popes exactly like this. So there's (laughs) so many stories to tell
1: right right yeah so what else
0: i was going to talk a little bit about simonetta vespucci only because she was rumored to be the lover of medici but most of what she was portrayed in was actually more on the roman side she was venus she did appear once as mary Yeah, I don't think there was anything particularly religiously significant about that one.
1: There are a lot of lovers who are portrayed as Roman and Greek gods and goddesses. Mm -hmm. I wonder why some of them became Christian figures, whereas others were pagan figures. Was it a decision like, ooh, I don't want to risk getting in trouble? Or was it they just preferred that? Was it just more illicit?
0: I think that it has more to do with the interesting alignment that you see during the Renaissance There was never a movement away from Christianity, and that should be importantly stated, because if you were a Renaissance leader and you suddenly were like, well, I don't know about the whole god thing, that wouldn't have gone well for you. (laughs) But we do have, for example, the Medici, who were very interested in aligning themselves with the Roman and the Greek gods of knowledge, and particularly because they were such incredible patrons of, science and development and innovation i think there was sort of a greater interest in those particular individuals for gods beyond the gods or or gods beyond god that we see a a more inclination to sort of try that out and see well what if i made my lover the goddess of beauty This this is a fantastic thing for me because i'm testing those waters and expanding my reach without deliberately angering the church.
1: Right, and I suppose it's a symbolism. It's maybe a mark of intelligence. I've read these, yes. I know what these are as well. Status mm-hmm. symbol, right?
0: I mean, it only works so well for the Medici because then we have Savonarola, but <laughs> <laughs> then we're gonna burn all of these paintings anyways, but
1: ah. I know. Sorry, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know, and of course, the only ones that survive from Savonarola's monastery are the ones from Fra Angelico because they were not so sensual.
1: Right, right, right. They were boring, quote unquote.
0: (laughs) It is interesting because this is obviously a practice that the popes were engaged in. I guess the only other one we could talk about with any sort of direct correlation to this idea of portraying saints a certain way is Julius. But Julius is an interesting character because even though he was commissioning the Sistine Chapel, or at least carrying on the commission of the Sistine Chapel and, and those pieces. This was a man who very much wanted to appear to be chaste, <laughs> which is the opposite of what we know about him now. He was incredibly philanderous and had many affairs and had children outside of wedlock. But it is interesting when we look at how Michelangelo uses that against him. Michelangelo uses his own lovers when he's depicting in his paintings rather than what Julius would want because he's sort of sticking it to Julius anyways. You want to appear to be so pious, I'm still going to slide in all of these things that are very suggestive just to mess with you. Right. (laughs) We know that there are several painted insults in the Sistine Chapel as well directed specifically at Julius so
1: right okay that's very cool yeah and I know with the last judgment painting there was a critic of Michelangelo's painted as a demon with a snake biting his crotch <laughs> at the bottom right sort of near the hell area
0: yes um, yes that hell area gets very intense as well
1: yeah and apparently loads of those figures are people Michelangelo didn't like
0: Mm-hmm. and there are um cherubs which are basically flipping off the pope yes
1: (laughs) yes and apparently a lot of the cherubs behinds were based on one of michelangelo's lovers named febo de poggio who Mm. was famous for having the best behind in rome fyi
0: you gotta have a good butt if you're gonna appear in a painting (laughs) exactly
1: he had the best oh as a
0: cherub they're so round (laughs) yeah catheligian
1: yeah he did his squats (laughs)
0: I think that covers everything that we wanted to talk about.
1: Yeah, that was fun.
0: So, Eric, thank you so much for giving us your time and coming to talk about all of this with us. Do you know what your next episode is going to be about? Can we ask?
1: Yes. uh, The next episode I'm currently making is about St. Dominic, known as the Hound of the Lord.
0: Ooh, that'd be interesting.
1: Yes. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to that one.
0: And if you had to pick a favorite, because we've covered many saints on our Patreon series and you and I have had many discussions about saints, but if you had to pick a favorite, who are you going with? Is it still St. Sebastian?
1: Yeah, I think it has to be St. Sebastian, <laughs> just for sort of old time's sake. Although I have to say Hildegard von Bingen is pretty badass. So she she's up there.
0: We're big fans of St. Game 4. Ah. <laughs> game 4. <laughs> So where can people find your podcast if they're looking for you after this, which they absolutely should?
1: Yes, it's everywhere. Spotify, Apple, Google, all the podcast platforms. There's a website too, saintpodcast.com. Saint is spelled out. So it's not S-T, it's S-A-I-N-T.
0: Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank
1: you for inviting me. That was fun.
0: So with that, we can say thank you and goodbye. Bye. Bye. Pontifax is edited by Greg Gassman. Greg is the host of the wonderful papal history podcast, Popular History, which is history through pope-colored glasses. At Popular History, you can also find daily content miniseries like Cardinal Numbers, Ranking All of the Cardinals, and coming up soon, Habemus Pointsome, where Greg and I will discuss all of the papal transitions. If you need to reach Greg, you can do so at popularhistory at gmail.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at pontifaxpod at gmail.com. And we're PontifaxPod on all social media platforms. If you'd like to support the show, consider subscribing to Pontifax on Patreon. Checking out our research wishlist at com slash pontifaxwishlist. Or making a one-time donation at paypal.me slash pontifaxpodcast. If you'd like to support us in other ways, rating and reviewing the show on iTunes makes a world of difference.